Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Football 360 One to One. I'm delighted to have Mark Crossley, better known as Big Norm, on the on the show this week. Welcome, Big Norm. How are you, pal? I'm all good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Top man, top man. You've been happy walk this morning. The dog's gone in for um, a spray this morning, so she's getting sprayed. So I'm a little bit, a little bit nervous about it. I bet, I bet you are, pal. I bet you are. You're not going to have a walking partner for a few days either. Exactly. <laughs> Nightmare. I'll be missing your videos, bro. I'll be missing your videos. Yeah. Nice yeah. one. Right, let's get cracking then. So straight into a warm-up panel. Um, I'm going to start off with asking you who your favourite footballer ever is and why. My favourite ever footballer? Well, I wasn't a goalkeeper till I was 15. So I tended to look more on the outfield. Since I've started playing in goal, I've always respected and I've done a lot of work with him. With Peter Schmeichel, I've done some work with his his company and stuff. And uh, I, I was lucky enough to play against him, but he was someone I looked up to when I played. But my favourite player when I was a kid growing up, where I live in Barnsley, the best team in the early 80s, albeit like Saturdays and Sundays, Sunday, Saturday mornings, uh, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoons. We yeah. used to play, you know, a school team and then your Saturday afternoon yeah. team, your Sunday morning team, yeah, and then a the the team Sunday afternoon. Because we just love playing football that much. A bit different these days because computers and stuff. And, yes, well, you know, and, and, and they, don't let, they don't let kids play more than one game a day these days, do they? Exactly. Go, go back to sometimes we were playing three times a day, like, but yeah. it's just the way brought up. But being brought up, the best team in our area were Leeds United. So you had the Alan Clarks, Norman Hunter. Yeah. They, were all the, they were the best team. So naturally, your dad, when he did take you to a game, it used to be a midweek game. Although I'm from Barnsley, I want Barnsley to do well. And I have a really big affinity with uh, Nottingham Forest because I was there 13 years. So they're the two teams, Barnsley and Nottingham Forest, that I like to uh, see you do really well. But growing up, I, my, my hero was Alan Clark, yeah. uh, who was centre forward for Leeds United, uh, who were the best team around. So every time we got a chance to go and watch Leeds United, my dad would take us and... Yeah. Yeah. Alan, Clark, Alan Clark was a big hero of mine because he scored all the goals. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it, it, just slightly before my time, but so many people I know are Leeds fans because of that era. And uh, well, the last, yeah, the, the last... doing my a little bit in it. That I mean, I was only a kid at the time, so I was only like eight, nine years old. But yeah. it just shows that plays. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Nice one. Okay, um, right. The best team ever. So, so your best. The best 11 players that you've ever seen, what's your favourite and why? So not, not like Barnsley or Forest, it could be one of them, but there's a moment in time when you've watched the team and gone, that's the best team I've ever seen, my, my favourite team ever. Uh, I think Barcelona, watching them when they had the Iniestas and the Xavis in and, and all that, that, that team was unbeaten, like, it was unstoppable, wasn't it? You know, and like, They'd go into the first rounds of the Champions League as like six to four favourites to win the competition. Yeah, now it's that good, like yeah. Man United eight to so that just shows their dominance and to watch them uh, was was a bit special. So that that team was Xavi, Iniesta, obviously uh, Raúl and the, the, the top. top oh, so Raúl was Real Madrid, wasn't he? Yeah, but yeah. like um, that that year. That type of era, but the Barcelona team were uh, were different class. Yeah, it's funny that I mean that, that's the answer I give because when yeah. 
uh, when he went there, he's, he was the B team manager, wasn't he, for a year, and then he went straight into straight to take the, right. the impact that he had in that three years and the football he played. I mean, my old man used to say to me, "Have you seen this Barcelona? You need to watch this son." And, and yeah, he'd sit there on a Sunday evening and watch it, and, you know, and he said, "This lot are just different gravy." It's the same over here now with Manchester City. Apart from last year, Liverpool were different class. They did really, really well. I think City at the beginning of the season were still favourites. But, you know, they've had a one-off season, but they're showing the dominance now. I mean, to go 19 games winning on the trot is, is phenomenal. Any team that reproduces that week in, week out. What, 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 I, what I like about... Sorry, mate. What, what I like about that, though, is that it's the first Guardiola team, maybe even ever, that defends... The way I think defenders should work should work together, you know, like as you know, they have a they have a desire to defend, they have a passion for defending and keeping clean. Yeah, and and they're relentless in their desire to block the pathway to goal, and I, I, I haven't seen that from his team before. No, I was lucky enough. I have a I have a friend that works. I worked at Sheffield Wednesday Academy for a year, and I did a full goal pick, goalkeeping program for them. Yeah. Uh, my academy manager was a guy called Dean Ramsdale, and he went. He went to work. Uh, he was poached by Man City, so he's working. This. I was looking enough to go over for the day, yeah. uh, round, which absolutely blew me away. I mean, our training, our training at ground at Forest was full of dog shit and people walking across. You <laughs> were training, you know what I mean? But, but that place is something else. But uh, he was telling me about some of the demands and uh, and what goes on there, and it and it and it blows your mind, you know. Yeah. Players actually live there. Yeah. Players Yeah. You know, so... Phenom phenomenal facilities. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of money behind it, but, you know, ultimately, just... Because uh, most clubs now have got training grounds that are just, you know, like, like five-star hotels, aren't they? It's a different world now. I caught the back end of it. Middles I signed for Middlesbrough in 2000, and theirs was a state-of-the-art training yeah, facility. Really. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, three years there, and it was like... It was like walking into a palace because you, you'd walk in and you'd get your dressing gown off the off the side yeah. and you'd get your kit, then you'd go and get changed, you'd hang your dressing gown up and then and you'd have your own flip-flops that you just slip your feet into. I mean, come on, I'm I'm a I'm a Barnsley lad, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I don't even have, yeah. have flip-flops, you know. So, uh, it well, was it was amazing. Yeah, I mean I, I can imagine for, for you going because Basically, going from, I mean, everyone like Pep said something really good, didn't he, a few weeks ago when they played? Was it, who did they play? Newport? I can't remember who they played, but played someone in the cup. And he said, All of our players have played grassroots football before. So don't think that just because they're, you know, nah. 10, 15, 20 million pound footballers now on, on millions a year, that they never played at a level that these players have. Yeah. And, and yeah. Because that's how we all get into it. No matter, you know, Rooney might, might have earned God knows how much, but how many, how many games did he did he play in the backyard or in the street or, you know, oh, on, yeah. on the park in the shit off it? Holy ball. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But for you for you to go from the, you know, your era and have that transition for when money came into the game, the, the, the training grounds changed. Yeah. I can yeah. imagine the first time you'd have gone into somewhere like that, it must have been quite a big culture change for you and something different to get used to. Whereas now, they just expect it, don't they? Yeah, I think like well, going back to grassroots football, like you said, we've always played. I I played from being nine years old, school, local football. Right. Then my uh took the school football team into a Sunday league football team, and then we started to recruit 
we were a good team, so we got better players from in and around the area. Then we then dominated the Sheffield and district area of the team that we had. It's really good to see that that team is still actually going today as well. Yeah, team like called the Rep Team. Oil and Common Falcons, they're called, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Grassroots yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so they're still going today at junior football and they've got like something like 20-odd teams, girls' teams and everything. Wow. It's really pleasing. So, yeah, we've all come... All the pros have, have gone through grassroots football at some stage, whether it be in the street, whether it be in the park, whether it be five-a-side with your mates, or we've all, we've all done it. And I think when you get to about 15, 16, 14, when your body starts to develop, that's when you see like the ones that break through and the ones that, ones that probably probably don't. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Nice one. Um, okay, so next question. This is one where basically, if you're a chairman and you have got the best players, all the money in the world, and you've got a cup final against another team that's in a similar position, the biggest cup final in the world, you need to pick. You need to pick um, a manager to get your result in that 90 minutes, just for that 90 minutes. I'm not talking about maybe a Guardiola developing a culture over time, but just one manager with one group of players to get one result in that one game. Who do you pick? It's probably, you'd have to probably go um, for someone who's the best motivator. And I'm lucky that I think I've re represented two of the best. Uh, I was lucky to go to Manchester United on loan for one month. So I worked with Fergie for a month. And I worked with Brian Clough, who won two European Cups back-to-back -back with a so-called average team. And it was, that was through pure top-class top man management, getting 11 players to run through a brick wall field. That's why I always say, if you get that, you've got a chance. If you're missing one or two, you've got no chance. Yeah. It was a top motivator, and so was Fergie. So it'd be a difficult one between the, between the two. Come on, um, I'm going to get, get the splinters out of your backside. Get off the fence, which one? I got, I'm going to go with Cluffy because I had six years with him and he and I seen a different day-to-day. -day. I only had a month uh, with Fergie to see how he managed and what he did. Right. But they were very similar and how they bonded. Um, I, I, I like to say that they're both family clubs, Manchester United were, and Forest. Right. And it came from the management because the management ran the football clubs. So it weren't, chairman, weren't directors, it weren't, there's that many names for different positions upstairs now, it weren't, um, oh, what do they call them, director of football, what, yeah. what's all that about? Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes, yeah. so the manager managed, yeah. and the way that he managed was, he made the players in the team, especially Cluffy, so the cleaning lady, and I say this a lot, the cleaning lady, the kit man, the guy that stands on the car park with the eye-vis vest, yeah. they're all as important as the captain, Stuart Pierce, yeah. And that's why we did well in the 90s as a team with no money to spend. Seven or eight came through the youth team in the team that I played in uh, and players were recruited from non-league. Yeah. And that's another thing I do when I'm speaking around the country at non-league clubs. Never give up because you never know who's watching. Yeah. I can tell you. I've seen it happen to loads. Happened to Jamie Vardy at Stocksbridge Park Seals. Yeah, yeah. Never know who's watching. So I always say that. So, but yeah, I'm going to go with Cluffy. Top class. Brilliant. Great answer. I think you're the first one just to make to say him, actually. I think this is, I don't know, 10, 12 interviews. And you're the first one to say him. So I, I, I mean, he's, he was my dad's hero as a player. Um, 
I only came across him once, and sadly, uh, it was when I was playing at Burton Albion, and, and and he was not in a good way then. It was sad to see him. The only time I saw him really was at a time when he was wasn't in great shape, which was sad. But he was my dad's hero. Yeah, when he got ill and that, and through through the booze, and we, you know, it's 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 quite out there that it was the booze that got hold of him. Yeah. It'd be interesting now doing all this stuff for mental health. Whether such a high profile character, such a big presence when he walks in the room, how did he let that get control of him? You know, was it a mental health issue? Do you know what I mean? Because I always say to it that that he was not only a football manager, he was a psychologist. Psychologist. He yeah. was. It was everything in one. Yeah. But is it was it the pressures of the job? He wouldn't show it because he made the job look a doddle, to be honest, you know. Uh, but how does the booze get hold of somebody? I mean, I like a drink. I'm sure you like a drink. and But it's something that's never got a grip of me. Like, you know, I, I don't drink in the house. But when I go out, I have a right good bevy. I've got to be honest, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah no, same, same. I mean, to be honest, you know, Coming from that era, you know, football drinking was just part of it, wasn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. beers on the bus on the way back, get a bit, get a big, big pack of beer, and, and get them, get them around the lads at the back of the bus. That was it. So that's right. Yeah, we used to have a beer. Yeah, you can have a drink on the way back on the bus, and yeah. not thinking about that, you got to get in your car and drive home when you got back. Because if you'd won a game, you'd say, "Well, I'm not getting the car. We'll carry on." <laughs> you'd end up where you ended up, wouldn't you? And that was it. Probably end up in. A divorce somewhere down the line, but you know, <laughs> worth it at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think there's a few gone down that road, no doubt about it. Right. So yeah. the last question then, before we get into the main part, just tell us something that not many people know about Mark Crossley. So only only maybe people in your inner circle that know about you. Something unique and different about you that perhaps people wouldn't expect. I think. Um... I'm a humble guy. I'm six foot four. Uh, I'm 17 stone. And if somebody turns on the light switch, I can be nasty, but very, very rarely. It's probably happened twice in my life where I've turned nasty towards someone and it's got me in trouble. And it's got me in trouble with the law. And it, But I'm a humble guy. Uh, I can honestly say that I put others first. Hence the charity work that we're doing. We're thinking about other people, thinking about people that are struggling. I feel blessed. I've had the opportunity to get paid for doing something that I love and loved all my life. Although I, I wanted to give more family time back and football's not everything. And people might think, what do you mean football is not everything? It's given you the life that you've got. I appreciate it but I'm a bit fed up of it. And it's the same as anything. I've been in the game 33 years. I didn't realise I was going to struggle mentally when I come out of it. No. I come out thinking I'm going to spend more time with my family. I'm going to do a few. Start thinking about me for a change. Um, but I still tend to, I think I think about others. So I'd say a humble guy thinks about others, very unselfish. No. Um, and I think I've been rewarded in life for being like that. Nice. Plus, yeah, karma, it comes, you know, you, you pay it forward, it comes back to you, doesn't it, sometimes when you when you most need it. I'm a massive believer in that, by the way. Karma. Me too. Brilliant. Great stuff. Great answer. Okay. Let's get into it a little bit then. So you just talked about when, when you packed in playing and, and probably had an impact on your, on your mental health and, and had an impact on you, probably your perception of who you were as a person. Um, 
as you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, this there's a lot of coaches who watch this. Um, so I want to talk probably more. Uh, we'll leave the mental health stuff and the walking what have you till to, towards the end. But I want to talk more about the transition from playing to coaching to your decision making process. How, how how did you change as a character towards the end of your career that made you start to think like a coach, start to think like a senior player or a leader or more of a leader? Um, and how did you find that process? I mean, how have you found going from playing and coaching? How do you enjoy it and compare the two? Well, um, as I was getting towards the end of my career, I was at Fulham. I was, uh, end of the contract would have taken me to 36 years old. Yeah. Uh, I was working under Chris Coleman, who was a friend, teammate, who was doing really well as a manager. Uh, I'd made my mind up that I wanted to give management a go back then. So I decided to do the coaching badges whilst I was still playing. And I think that's pretty important. A lot of players think, well, when I finish, I'll get a job. Won't be a problem. Don't work like that. So I would encourage anybody that wants to stay in the game and wants to become a coach, as you're coming towards the end of your playing career, which you will, you'll know, yeah. you'll know there, because uh, you can't go on forever because the fitness, fitness demands are too high mm-hmm. and your body won't let you do it. So start to learn, find someone you can learn off. So I went to Chris Cole and I said, look, I know I'm not going to get my contract renewed. He goes, well, we might be able to do another 12 months to do that. I goes, all right, that's great, but I'm not playing here now. And if I'm going to carry on playing, I don't care about the money. I want to go somewhere and finish my career playing. He goes, well, I can't guarantee you that you'll play, but the reason we want you is we love you around the place, your character. Uh, You can help the younger pros. So I said, make me a coach then. Make me a coach. Uh, Well, we can't do that. Certain things, certain ways, political, whatever. So I said, well, how can I learn from you then? What can I do to learn? And what he did do, the last six months through my contract, uh, he let me go into his office, uh, learn how how he handled phone calls, dealt with agents. uh, And then he started showing me the meetings, planning for coaching sessions, Right. Uh, what one coach would do, what the goalie coach would do, what this coach would do. So I learned a lot without doing the badges. Did you, so I did the. Wait, wait, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, mate. Was that a big light? Was that like a, like someone to turn on a light switch? Or had you seen some of this, but you just haven't put it all together when you were a player? No, it took me by surprise the yeah. amount of work and the work, the amount of work and preparation. I just thought, oh, you've got good players, set a formation up, go out and play. That's what we did at first, but I'm sure there was other things behind it. Yeah. Uh, but everything right down to recruitment, how long you need to watch a player for before we go and spend 10 million in, on him and who goes to watch him before the manager goes to watch him and all that type of thing. That's It's still coaching. Coaching is just not just on the training field telling someone what to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I would, I would say, I would say that on the training field. I mean, the way I define when people say, because this is a big thing for me, right? I think managing is what you're describing there, like managing the everything, every facet of, of a football club or, or a football team's performance. But then the coaching is a different is a different aspect. Is one part of managing. That's just how I how I describe it to people because I try and be both because I've only ever worked in the part time game, so I've never. I've never been in, I mean, rarely have I had the luxury of saying, right, I'm going to have him as my, my physio, him as my goalkeeping coach, him as my, I've generally had to wear a number of different hats. But I don't think I've spent enough time on the grass as a coach, despite doing it for maybe 10 years, to be a, a real specialist 
you know, like like a Steve McLaren was at Derby or Man United, you know, that, yeah. that real specialist as a, as, a, as a coach compared to a manager. And that's just... I think coach. Because you don't get it on a coaching course, do you? You don't learn how to do all the things you're saying there on a coaching course. It's about mm. so much more. Not, yeah. Um, coaching courses that I went on, the, the, the UEFA B licence was about coaching on the field. Yeah. Uh, with a little bit of the that what I've just spoke about thrown in thrown in, yeah. the A line was the same, yeah. but moved moved more closely towards other things that go on around coaching on the pitch. Yeah. And the pro license, there was no coaching on the pitch. No, that's, the pro, yeah. everything to do with what I've I've, I've just spoke about recruitment. You've got, you've got your pro license. I'm pro license. Yeah. Fast, brilliant. Okay. Took me from from level. From from B license because as an ex player you got you get fast tracked onto your B license onto your A license and your pro license uh, with a break in between took me about eight eight years right with a, with a short break in between to just do them three badges yeah. um, and the amount of work that goes into it it's not just a case of just turning up and going yeah, yeah. so I enjoyed the pro license because. It, it opened my eyes so much, like learning how to deal with media and getting experts in yeah. that you want to try and replicate and also add your, you know, interviews to be a manager, interviewed by a panel of directors. And and, and while you was doing it, there was, there was 20, 20 odd people on our pro license. While we were doing it in one room, it was getting video channeled to the, to the room. So the coaches were watching you get an interview. Yeah. And as you can imagine, there were lots of bands and all that, but all those little things. That made my mind up that I wanted to be a manager. Mm, brilliant. Um, it's hard to get the opportunity to be a manager, but I think management, has, for me, I'm probably a little bit too humble to be a manager and you know what I mean? yeah. to say no to people. Yeah. So as far as picking the team when it becomes difficult, I had a go at caretaker manager at Chesterfield alongside a friend of mine, uh, Tommy Wright. So we had 12 games in charge. And that's what made me realise it's not for me. Was that Tommy Wright the winner? Yeah. yeah. Leicester. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Leicester, Middlesbrough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was assistant manager to John Sheridan at Chesterfield when we had a really good season. We won the league and went, did the Johnson's Paint Trophy and won that and all that. He was assistant manager. But when John finally left, yeah. Tommy took. Yeah. Me and him did the me and me and him did the role together. Um, we were appointed joint caretaker managers, yeah. and I just real that's when I realised after a few games, I said, "Tommy, you make the main decisions. I can do all the organising, set up training, whatever you want to do, yeah. uh, and I think that way it'll work together. Where you make the final decisions, and I realised that it wasn't for me. Pressures of winning, pressures of uh, maybe this is where the like mental health issues started." Pressures of winning, dealing with it on a night time when you get home. Yeah. As a coach, you can kind of you can kind of go home and forget about it. As a manager, you definitely can't. As yeah. a coach, you want to help the manager as much as you can, and you feel for him. But I can't say I came home too many Saturday nights after a defeat and thought, yeah, I was gutted for the team and the, and the work that we put in through, for the week. But it didn't affect my home life. Being a manager affects your whole life. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and I think the other thing is, and it's just where you come across to me, your profile feels like a good fit to be a liaison between players and management. So, like, you've got good way with people, you know, and, and, and that, you know, the banter, you know, like, you're popular, you, you know, even in your play groups now, years after, 
you're clearly someone yeah. a bit of a ringleader or someone right in there in amongst it. Yeah. Like, and I think when you're managing at lower clubs or you're a coach at lower clubs, you're automatically respect, respected by the players because of what you've done. Yeah. So that, that's a bonus. So my job was, in all the managers I've worked under as a coach, was the dressing room and the management go to team, go, go between without being a snake or a grass. Yeah. You've got to get the players to trust you so they can come to you because some of them are uncomfortable at going straight to the management. They'd rather come to the coach. What's going on, big man? You, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Mm. And then the way that you put that back to the player so he still trusts you, but you can probably go to the manager and say, without saying so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, you could go, maybe we could start doing this. Maybe he had a point there, you know. And that's why... I was trusted by all the managers I worked under, that relationship between the players and the man I could be a goal between. And it's a very, very important position. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely I'm with you. Okay. So so I think the final thing on coaching for me then, for you, you've done a lot of goalkeeping coaching as well as being a caretaker manager, as well as being a coach with a more broader remit. But I mean, how do you find I know because I think you still do some goalkeeping coaching now, right? Uh, I'm totally out of it at the moment. Okay. No, I'm totally but you on a in recent times. I was going to set up my own goalkeeping school, but then COVID hit, and I was going to coach coaches to be better coaches. Yeah. I, I set up this thing with the government where uh, I was going to get goalkeeping coaches from, from non-league yeah. uh, and try and make them become better coaches so they could they go on to coach at higher levels, basically. Yeah. But that never happened because COVID struck and still has struck so yeah. kind of like leaked off that a little bit something I might do uh, yeah. in the future what, what yeah. do you have a passion for goalkeeper like for improving goalkeepers individually coaching the co no forgetting about the players coaching the coaches to coach better I'm sorry I'm with you yeah. sessions why we do the sessions there's much more to goalkeeping than just stopping the ball winning the goal yeah yeah I mean you know positional play how you how you communicate with your defenders? How you communicate in the dressing room after a game if things have not gone too? There's loads. There's a wide horizon. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I have I have a view that um, it's still neglected by a lot of levels of the game. Of course, when you work in a full time game, you've got full time schedule, full time staff. But as soon as you start getting the lower levels of that and the top end and on league and, and, and further down, goalkeepers get neglected, and I'm guilty of it myself. Yeah, you have two goalkeepers. And, you know, we, we, they have separate sessions with the club goalkeeper and coach, but we don't always have them in our sessions. So we have to, of course, they use the feet a little bit more these days because it's an integral part of the game playing out from the goalkeeper. Yeah. But using the hands, using, like you say, the positioning, having the confidence that, you know, when to, when to go and get on your toes a little bit and go forward a little bit rather than, you know, it, it, there's so much detail that I'm not What's a coach of, of, with goalkeepers. And I think there's a lot, a lot out there who would probably say the same. It's all about, and a lot of it's about decision making as well and making the right decisions. One thing I would do if I was in charge, uh, I always used to start early with my goalkeepers on a training session to make sure I get their work, fitness levels, whatever it is, get it into them. Yeah. Uh, where you're isolated in a corner, quarter of the pitch, you've got a big goal and you do your little drills. Yeah. That's what people think goalkeeping coaching is. Well, it isn't. It's a, it's a, a just the start of it. Yeah. Now for me, and I got and I drilled this into the managers. I said to the managers, every goalkeeper should be involved in every keep ball session, 
everything that you do, a goalkeeper should be involved in, especially now, because they're players. Yeah, absolutely. They're players. So how, the goalkeeper's got to learn where does he want to receive the ball? Is, it, is he more comfortable on his left, on his right? So by keep ball sessions, he yeah. learns that. Yeah, range. yeah. And then the, the up, on the opposite, it trusts the players to be able to use the goalkeeper. Yeah. Oh, he's getting with his feet. He's good. I can trust him with a ball now. He'll give it me back. And so they should be involved with everything. They shouldn't be isolated. Yeah. And I think managers as well, they should be going on goalkeeping coaching courses yeah. to learn about how the goalkeeper actually thinks, how he wants to help. Yeah. Don't isolate him. He's part of your team. He's very important part of your team. And that's why the best teams are paying 70 and 80 million for him now. Yeah. They're yeah. beginning to realise how important they are. Exactly, exactly. They are so important. And, and yeah, like I say, I, I feel like I've, because I asked for some help from a pal of mine who, who's been on, on the show actually, Jamie Brasson, who's out in Iceland coaching. And, and, he, and he, he was at Burton Albion and he's, he's been at South End and a couple of other clubs. But I, I, a few years ago, he sent me some information and some pointers on how to integrate goalkeepers into my sessions more because I didn't have a, a dedicated goalkeeping coach just for my team at the time. Yeah, I needed I needed to do better. I knew I, I knew I was isolating them. I knew I was not making them part of the team. I knew I wasn't improving them, and I knew I, I wasn't doing a good enough job. And even just having an extra couple of hours going through that detail, helping to design the sessions better, and exactly as you just said. Making sure that they were part of some of the people, the rondos, the first touch, the angle of their first touch. Now, so important because if you yeah. get that ball off and you can play out to the fullback half a second quicker, well, the opponents have pressed two yards less or five yards less. It's so important. Yeah, it is. Um, but you can't do it if you haven't got the staff. Yeah. So this is where it becomes really, really difficult. Yeah. And another thing I like to involve into my coaching, I used to grab the, I used to grab the strikers. Yeah, but I I always thought that why why don't goalkeeping coaches coach strikers? Because logically, the strikers don't know what the goalkeeper doesn't yeah. like. Brilliant. So I'm going to coach you what he doesn't like. Surely that's going to make you better. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, across the front of the goalkeeper when there's a ball, an unselfish run to let your mate get a tap in. Goalkeeper hates you running across the front of him. Hates it. Superb example. I, yeah, like, like I said, the knowledge that you've got as a goalkeeper, and I've probably done the same in the centre half, you know, with forwards and said, listen, I, I hated someone running off my shoulder. You play in front of me all day long and I've got to tap the ball and get squeezed and I can see everything there. But you start coming in these areas, my blind spot and off my shoulder, I'm, I, I'm, right. I'm out of my comfort zone. And um, the lad who's going to be a top, top manager I've worked with, him, Kevin Nolan, is going to be a top class manager. He's at West Ham at the moment. He's, he's had a taste of management already, got knocks counting to the playoffs. Yeah. His, his work ethic and that is, is superb. He's the first one that's listened to me. And I said to him, do me a favour. If the goalie plays well in a game and the press say to you, the goalkeeping coach must be do, doing a good job, just say back to him, he's not my goalkeeping coach. He's my coach. Yeah. He's my coach. He's not, it, there's much more to, and that way we can broaden the trust in goalkeeping coaches to, to gain the respect that I think they deserve. And it's so hard because you're labelled, oh, you're a goalie, stick to coaching goalies. No, I'm better than that. I've got much more to offer. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Agree. I agree. 
I, I became that in the end. So he'd often say to me, will you take the session today? Yeah. And I session, whether it be 11 v 11 and stopping it and blowing it, saying, why, why are you pressing the ball there? Yeah. You know, why are you, not, why are you not standing still in that area? Why are you not playing in strikers? Why are you not playing in between defenders? Why are you, why are you always coming towards the ball? Yeah. Why doesn't one come towards the ball and one running behind? All these little things. And I used to stop it and just go, oh, brilliant, that. Brilliant. You know what I mean? So, he let me get on with it and, and gain, the, gain the respect that I thought that I deserved and not just come home, the goal is up. Yeah, all right, well, that's what you want me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Harry Kuehl became manager and, you know, this, this is the difference where Kev wanted ma a massive input from me. Harry Kuehl didn't and that's fair. You know what I mean? Harry Kuehl wasn't really interested in me. He didn't know me. He didn't know whether he could trust me and this is the thing. And then Harry Kuehl left. Neil Hardley came in. Well, I knew Neil because I did my A licence with. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Cox and Neil Cox as well. And Coxie, yeah. Um, so they become, because I knew them and they knew who I was, there's a little bit more trust there. So, and it's just, it's just a merry-go-round circle, mate. And and then I think, well, Neil is still at Notch County and they're doing okay, but yeah. I'm a bit fed up with it. And that's my honest People say, why? You've got so much to offer. But so many people around me are missing out. Kids, my dog. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. And football, to me, is, I still love it. I still commentate on it. I work for Radio Sheffield. Yeah. I love doing it. There's no pressure. I can say what I see. And I don't care what anybody says back. Because yeah. now contracted to Radio Sheffield to say it as you see it. Yeah. Uh, and then I go home on a Saturday night and it's like, well, that was a good game today. Brilliant. Loved it. Enjoyed the commentary. Uh, came out with a few daft lines and people are responding and that's great. And all of a sudden the feeling at home is like, right, got, it's my wife and kids now. Right. So for me, football at the moment, I'm not saying I'll never go back, is there. I'm here. Football's there. And I want to go there with my family so just my thoughts in life it's a really really important point this and not a lot not a lot of people talk about it and my my view on it is and all that so i've got two things on this right first off is almost all of my life since i finished playing i've had, a, had an itch that i wanted to scratch more on coaching i wanted to commit more time i felt like i'm not quite able to give and it's partly because of family, partly because of my career. Those are the two things, really. My family first, my career puts food on the table. My career's gone all right, and I have to service that need. And, and, and I wouldn't earn as much money in football as I do in my career. So, so I've, all the time, I've been looking at my ability, my, my potential, my, my dream, I guess, of coaching, because that's what I feel, really feel like I... I, I one of the things I think I'm put on the earth to do is to, is to, is to lead, is to coach, is to, to bring young players on, is to develop players at any level. But I, I have this slight jealousy about it. But after a few years of that, feeling that jealousy, I started to see all the benefits of the things that I've decided to focus on, most importantly, being family, being around, yeah. being able yeah. to have breakfast with them, not coming back late, not having the whole weekends taken up. And yeah. the said to me, Come on, let's do this as a family. And I might be like, I want to do this for football. And 
we've had a little bit of a normal man and wife situation about it, but mm. I'm glad she said it. And I'm so glad that she gave me that nudge that I needed to just get things in perspective. And I feel like there's a lot of young coaches out there now, because coaching is the second most most difficult labour market after playing. There are yeah. thousands and thousands of kids who are experts on football manager, experts at theoretical coaching, experts at football analysis, and they want to get into the game. So if you want yeah. to coach now, you've got to be willing to do it for next to no money, work double long hours, uh, and not get a lot of thanks for it. And, and really probably have 90% of your life being downtrodden with the 10% the sunshine money. That's kind of the way I think you have to be, but it's, you've got to be resilient to get through all that. I think you're absolutely done, really. You are really, and the harder it is to get into it is if you haven't played at that higher level and yeah. it's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong. I've, I've met loads of kids with a lot of knowledge, yeah. a lot, and I've nicked some of the knowledge. I'll be yeah. honest, I've nicked so, that was a point. Uh, but there, there's more in it in analysis than that now. There's more guys getting involved in football through analysis because yeah. the quick on computers and computers are a massive part of the coaching programs now. You know, you have to be able to do it. Yeah. But it is hard for someone that hasn't played professionally in the game to actually get into it. There's very few that, that succeed. Yeah. And there's a lot of time, a lot of money getting there. And Especially coaching at lower leagues, you know, you don't get rewarded money-wise for what for the amount of hours that you work. I was probably at Notts County. I was probably working for the minimum wage, less yeah. when you work. Hours. Well, that's that's another thing. It's it's a it's a massive misconception, isn't it? That there's loads of money in the game. You can be a, a League Two coach, and you'd be in front of thousands of people every week and on the television or what have you. You'd be earning less than the bricky, who's yeah. and doing a little bit of overtime. And put yeah. extra food on the table, who's probably got more job security. And I think when you yeah. make comparisons like that, you realize listen, we've got a passion for it, you know, regardless whether or not you've got more perspective in life these days. And, and you realize that football does tire you, and other things might be better for you as a player. Yeah. And I think the same. We've still got a passion for it. We still, football's in our blood. Passion. Passion, it's. It is. It is. And, 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 and I keep getting drawn back to it. And yeah. I, I have to check myself. And think logically, what's the reward for me and my family, and more so for my family than me? Because while the kids are young, they're more important than my needs. Then in the future, maybe it maybe it comes along. But it's such an important point because I see I see I also see a lot of coaches now coming out of the game. I've seen a lot in the last year or two, maybe because of COVID, but also because they've they've had that light bulb moment and gone, hang on, what what why am I you know, doing my 70 hour weeks to get paid 20 grand a year when I could, like you say, could be going go and work on a building site, only work mm. 25, 40 hours a week, and have a few quid for my family and for a few beers on a Saturday night. It's, it's that's right. Well, I was first team goalkeeping coach at Barnsley and I was on 25 grand a year, yeah, uh, in the championship. Which we so, compare that to players, compare that to players just a level above, yeah. You know, after you've after you've paid your, your tax and your travel expenses, because we never we never got any anything back for that, yeah. and then the amount of time that you're away from your family, sociable hours, yeah, and that, and the sacrifices, yeah, it's only the addiction to the game and the passion for coaching and giving giving away your information uh, that's yours to to people to help them. That's it. That's the that really kept me going. I, I've, I've been looking at when I played and 
and I, I, I looked after what I had. Call me tight. I don't know. Maybe I was, but I invested well. So yeah. I didn't really need the job at Barnsley. I wanted to do it because I was addicted to football. Yeah, yeah. I ain't, and I'm just not addicted to football anymore. And I don't know if that's an age thing. I'm 52 this year. Roy Hodgson, I don't know how they do it. They go on for, it was 70 odd years old. I'm like, how do you do it? Yeah. And now I've just booked an holiday for next February. So the sacrifices are for your family. Well, we can only go on holiday the end of May to the beginning of June because you're back for pre-season training on the 1st of July. So yeah. that, we don't We've all had the grief from the family and the missus and what have you about the, about the limitation. You can't go out Friday night for a meal with friends because I'm playing tomorrow or I'm coaching or whatever. Friday yeah. night you get back 10 o'clock so you, your missus doesn't get a night out on the weekend. Or, you know, and then, like you said, the family, the, the holidays, it just, and I don't, I'm not knocking anyone because I feel it. I've got, I feel that addiction for the game. It's yeah. always in me, and I always feel like I'm hard done by by not being able to commit myself full time to the game. Yeah, but I'm lucky as well. But I've got the perspective, yeah. and I've got things that force me that have forced my hand on because yeah, what would have happened if I'd have said, well, I don't know, I could have gone out into the states and played professionally or whatever instead of you know instead of yeah. in England. Who knows? You know, if I'd have committed myself to football for longer, I might not be. I've had the opportunities I've had since you know for, for more important things. It's a, it's an yeah. Really? And it's like um, a passion for coaching, which I, I, I still have, actually. But it's not that I can't be bothered to go out and do it. There's other things. And like what being out of football, although early on it, it destroyed me mentally when I come out, because I'm 33 years without a break. Yeah. And I thought it would be all right. And I wasn't. Because I just couldn't. It was the routine. It was the being told where to be, when to be there, why you've got to be there, what you got to eat, when you got to go to bed, when you got to get up in the morning, and go for a walk, when the kickoff is Saturday. That trains the brain. It's very regimental. All of a sudden, you're in a, I'm in a position where someone, so you get in touch with me, we, we come under this podcast, yeah, we'll sort the data, but I can say no if I yeah. want. Yeah. To football, you can't. You, it's your job, you're contracted, you've got to do it. It's like with the after dinner speaking. Uh, can you go down South Wales and do this job? Uh, now I'll give that one a miss. Thanks very much. But although I find it hard to say no, I'm now in a position to be able to say, "No, nah, I'm not bothered. Get somebody else to do that, mate." The wrong yeah. thing, if you if you said I'm not going to go down there, but I'm going to go and take take the kids out to play on the park or whatever, and I'm going to have time to do that on Saturday morning. Yeah, to that on Friday night. It's not the wrong decision, and no one can, can tell you it's wrong. It, it's finding that happy medium, like, because, like, family gets on your nerves at times as well. The kids get on your nerves. Yeah, at times well. So it's like finding that I'm not doing too much of that. I'm committing to that, but I don't want to do to commit too much to that because I want to do still do a little bit of that. <laughs> it's like you're a lucky man to all have all these things in your in your life, big dog. You're a lucky man yeah. to have all these things and that balance, aren't you? Yeah. I think, because. If you've only got that one thing and it's family or face, what happens when it's all taken away, like you say, when you can play? Mm. Mm. Okay, listen, really interesting conversation. And as I say, I think a lot of people, they just can't say no to football. And I think it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem for a lot of people. But, you know, it brings a lot of good as well. But it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. Right, let's get on to um, the main man, Cluffy. I, I've heard a lot of your interviews. I've 
everything I can find out about Brian Clough, I've, I've found out over the years. I've watched, I've consumed, I've listened to the interviews, you know, the Damned United, all that stuff, the programs I've got, you know, everything. Um, tell me, tell me what you think the best things about him were and and what would still work today? Because not everything that he did would still work today. No. Uh, people often ask me that question, could he still manage today? My answer to it is, he probably could, because he was always one step ahead anyway. But the problems that he would have are dealing with football agents and people saying... He's my player. This is what we're demanding. He wouldn't. He would not be able to deal with that because what he used to say was, "If you want to get somebody else to speak about your wages and stuff like that, and you can't do it with yourself with me, go and play for somebody else." Yeah. And his way or the highway. My way or the highway. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly how he was. So, like, my first contract was a blank co- professional contract. It was a blank. And he said to me, uh, would you like a new contract? Would you like a new contract, son? <laughs> so, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love one, boss. Come and see me on Monday morning and we'll sort a new contract out. So I, go and, I can't wait. Go and see him. Get a new contract. Told everybody, the family, and I go and see him. Uh, and I think this epitomises Brian Clough and actually who he was. Yeah. Um, so I walk into his office and he looks at me and he said, he used to call me Shithouse, <laughs> one of the nicknames. Yeah. Is this a family show, is it? <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. It's all right. There's no... He, so he'd asked me to go and see him, but when I got there, he said, what can I do for you, Shithouse? <laughs> he me to come and see you about... Signing a new contract. Yeah. Did I? I said, yes, boss. Friday, you was in the sauna. I got you a towel from the drying room and brought it. And you said, come and find me and we'll give you a new contract. So I'm here. Just a minute, son. So he opens his drawer and he puts a contract on the table. It's a blue piece of paper like that. And it's got on it year one, year two, year three, year four, so on. So um, and then it'd have your wages bonuses and then the rules and regulations behind it like four or five pages he said sign that I said sign what sign that I said I can't sign that sign it or piss off and play for Barnsley he said and Barnsley were in the third division then so he ain't going to go from the top league down there so I thought so there were no football agents then. No. no telephones. This was 1988. Only, only had a call. No, no mobile. Yeah. Only, so you've got, and he said, leave my office. You've got five minutes to think about it. So I thought, well, where am I going to go? So I step outside his office. Close the door, shit house, he said. <laughs> Closed the door and I'm stood in the corridor. And he must have known that I was like stood there. And all of a sudden he's going, four minutes, four minutes, three minutes, three minutes. Oh, she's going to play for Barnsley. So I went back in the room and I signed the contract, signed a blank contract. So I rings my dad up when I get a chance off the, off the, off the club phone and he said, 
what are you doing? Signing a blank contract, what are you doing? I said, well, I was put in a position where I couldn't, could not, couldn't not sign it. Anyway, that night, phone rings in, uh, in my house, whereas the phone at the side of the couch answers it. Evening, son, evening, son. I'd like to say thank you for agreeing to play with me for the next four years at Nottingham Forest Football Club. So I'm thinking, I've got a four-year contract. Brilliant. That's all I was bothered about. Right. I'm going to play for Forest for the next four years. Come and pick your contract up in the morning, son. And I'd made some inquiries. What was the going rate for a young pro to come in? Uh, what was the money financially? Da, 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 da. And he'd give me 500 quid a week, which was 100 quid a week more than one of the players, the same age as me, would be in similar. I'll not mention his name. because, it... And it was because I signed a blank contract. So he looked. So the, the way you look at it is, I've trusted him. Yeah. He's trusted me. Yeah. And he's rewarded a, you a little bit for it. There's a bond there now. Yeah. Whatever he says in future, I'm going to trust him because he filled in my contract. Sure and he knew I wanted a car. Yeah. I was after, I passed my test. I want. I needed a car. And to get a car at 17 years old under him, you couldn't get one until he said. You're not getting a car, you're a big idiot, son. I'll tell you when you can have a car. Yeah. Can't tell a 17-year-old now, apprentice now, and he's going to get a car or not. So I had to wait. I had to stick to buses and trains and making my way, get myself to the training ground, get there. It's not easy, but so do it. Well, so, you, so you did it. Yeah. And then when, when uh, I picked my contract up on the Tuesday morning, on the bottom of the contract, in his own handwriting, it hadn't been typed out, he put Elizabeth's car. Now, his daughter was trying to get rid of a car. She'd got a new car, didn't like it. And he gave it to me. So there's car keys in the envelope when I picked the contract up. And I said to okay. the secretary, please. What, what sort of motor was it? Well, she, I said, where's the car? She, I said, a car? She said, yes, yeah, give you a car. Where is it in the car park? She said, "Go and press the thingy." So I go. It said Ford on the key on the key, and it was the, the alarms that go boop boop. You know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Car park, and I pressed it. So I pressed it. The lights flash. Brand new, brand well, six month old XR three white XR three I with a black soft top roof, which was the way that car on the seventeen, aren't you then? So I'm thinking he's giving me car and then eventually going through the, the next months, I've noticed there's been 50 quid a month being taken down my wages. <laughs> so he's, he's actually giving me the car, but really he's making me pay for it out of the wages. <laughs> so I'm still paying for the car anyway, but it's just, if that can relate to how we actually manage and treat you, right. exactly what he was. But he, but he did right by you, clearly. And, and, and how long were you there? Were you at Forest Park? I was six years under him, but I was there for 13 years in total. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and it, you know, top club, I mean, I, I know, I mean, it's still a top club in the championship, but I mean, I remember that Forest side and like you say, not a lot of money, playing unbelievable football. I don't yeah. know players that went on. I mean, you know, they paid for the club as well, didn't they, really? The, the transfer fees that someone went for after, after they'd had years developing under him. Oh, right. The likes of Pierce and Des Walker, Roy Keane, Stan Collymore, Steve Hodge. The, the list goes on and on and on, mate. You know, it, it really does. 
yeah. Teddy Sherry, uh, Brian Roy, some top top. When you look back now, right. and you look at some of them players, and no wonder we did we competed pretty well. To say we were a club that never spent any money. Well, always, we, always, always at Wembley. Always at Wembley. It felt like for three or four years. And I only played in one of them because, like I said, I, I got into trouble with the law once and I got punished for it. We were in the League Cup final and I'd been in a fight with someone and I got dropped for the Cup final, which was an absolute... That was a bigger, bigger punishment in itself. Who was, who was the other keeper then who stepped in? A lad called Andy Marriott. Andy Marriott, yeah. yeah. Welsh, Welsh keeper. Yeah. 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 Oh. So... So that explains really, in, in a nutshell, what Clifford was actually like. So you walk into training in the morning, uh, if he saw you and you stood with your hands in your pockets, he hated people standing, talking with their hands in the pockets. It was all to do with discipline. He would march you up to what you'd call the drying room where all your kit was dried and sold by the, the, the ladies. And he'd stand there until she sold, sold your pockets up. So you could have jeans on, tracky bottoms, they Oh, so sold this young man's pockets up, please, Lynn. So she'd sold the pockets up. And then you couldn't stand with your hands in your pockets. It was a big thing. It's like handshake. If you had a limp handshake, yeah. it'd punch you in the stomach. Yeah. If you didn't have a look at me when I'm talking to your son. Yeah. You might learn something. So all them little things, you know. I, I mean, to be honest, kids these days would have driven him absolutely crackers, I'd be brutally honest. They do me. They do me, and I'm obviously more tolerant than he would have been. Yeah, but he had this presence, he had this, I think half of it was psychological, but he didn't really actually know that he was doing it. Yeah, it wasn't premeditated, it was just yeah. his habit and, and his instincts type of thing. Yeah, instincts, yeah. good word, instincts, Got, just going off his instincts, yeah. Yeah, class. And yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, my, my guess is, and what I've read is that there was a lot of fives played and the one, you know, trade sessions would be all sorts of maverick things, going for a run along by the river or whatever, a lot, a lot of days, going for a walk or whatever. But, I mean, did he, did him and Peter Taylor put on sessions that you would say look like coaching sessions that you'd see today or anything like it? Well, Peter Taylor was left in 1984 and I signed in 87. So I only, I only heard about what Peter Taylor did. Right. Uh, it was kind of like... I think he was like the brains behind all the, the European Cup wins, especially. I think he was the like brains behind it, and Clough was the one that fronted it all up. Yeah. Uh, and then Clough's assistants after Peter Taylor under us was a guy called Alan Hill, who was from, from Barnsley. He, he scouted in the first place. Ronnie Fenton, people that you never heard about. Um, that stepped I'm, into I'm, Peter. Laughing, I'm laughing a little bit because I've got Dean Saunders' Cluffy impression. Really? <laughs> you know that story he tells about when, Illy, about when he went and signed or didn't sign. He likes flowers. Get him some flowers. <laughs> yeah, brilliant story. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I digress a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, like you just said there, the Dean Saunders story. It's it's uh, it, everybody you speak about that have actually met Brian Clough. You don't hear anybody saying bad things about him. You say, God, frighten me to death. It's because he, he wasn't an angry man. He wasn't, he's oh. just had this presence and he knew how to destroy a, an, in, an interviewer. You know, like he, if he was going in with that in his head, right, 
if he asks me a stupid question here, I'm going to give him a stupid question back. And I, I've got one, I still play it. And I, it, I was having a bad time. I was going through a bad spell in the team. And there's no way he was leaving me out. He was going to let me get through it. Uh, and Brian Moore interviewed him before a game against, I can't, I can't remember what the game was, and said, there's a surprise tonight. Uh, you've stuck with your goalkeeper. He's having, he's having a bad time. There's, a, there's calls for him to be taken out of the team. Da, 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 da. Young Crossley. Um, Brian, let me stop you there, son, he said to Brian Moore. Have you seen the league position we're in? He said, yes, you're in fourth, Brian. If it wasn't for young Crossley, we'd be 10th. What's the next question, son? So he did that, but he did that knowing that I would see it. Yeah, yeah. His manager. So I get, oh, the gaffers are with me. I'm having a bad time. I know I am. What am I going to do to get through it? Mm-hmm. Which it's hard. Crowded on my, on my back. and But I will get through it, but I just need time. And that one interview, when I seen that the yeah. day after, I thought... Uh, my game, my, uh, it just changed overnight like that. My form came back, you know. You shouldn't be on a floor to feel ten feet tall. Yeah. And this is why he was class. And this, a lot of people could, a lot of managers could learn a lot from him still now, although he's not with us. If they just watch his interview and find out the method behind the madness, you know, he should have managed England. He should have been given the chance. Was a big disappointment, I think, for everybody. We should have gave Cluffy a chance. Yeah, what a man, what a man, what an incredible... I mean, I, I feel, you know, I'm lucky that I grew up in the 80s and saw his teams play, you know, heard all the stories from my old man, from my old man's from the bar and he, he's, he, you know, he watched him as a, you know, his, his, his debut. He watched, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, no, the first game my, my dad watched was against Brighton and Clough scored five. And you can imagine you know, for a kid, you know, who your hero is going to be after that. And, and then I was lucky enough, I mean, I... I think Nigel Clough, I came across a few times. I came across him once before I started playing at half decent level. I'd got, I'd had a few drinks, a lot of drinks actually, one Wednesday night. I'd been at a nightclub and I got on a train from York to go and see a girl at like three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I ended up falling asleep and I ended, I ended up in Burton. And Nigel Clough got on opposite me and we sat, you know, with the table and, you know, where yeah. the place each other. And we talked football for only about 20 minutes, half hour, but I hadn't been to bed, stinking the boot. I mean, I was, I was not a picture of health or a good habit at the time. And, um, and about 18 months later, I was playing against him. <laughs> but, yeah. And, and so, you know, his whole life and club's life and the way the impact he had on my dad and, and on football in general, I'm lucky that I at least had some of that magic dust, even if it was just from afar or indirectly. Whereas kids these days will never know what it was like to listen or see a Brian Clough interview no. or see his people play. And it's just a shame because you don't get characters like him now, do you? They're out there, though. I mean, every kid knows where YouTube is and that. And there's, there's millions of interviews of his if they can switch him on and learn a lot, not just about football, but about life in general. True, true, true. Absolutely. Well, and, and the th- funny, you, you say before about Ferguson as well. I mean, just quickly, what was what was that like having a month at United on Ferguson? Yeah, it was pretty much similar. Um, I was, I, I didn't, I, it wasn't a choice to go. I was told I was going. Man United did not forest out the FA Cup. Mark Robbins scored a goal that everyone said actually saved, saved Fergie's job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So Mark Bosnich was at Man United, but he couldn't get a work permit. Uh, obviously, Forrest were out the FA Cup. I was a young lad. I played at Old Trafford earlier in the season. We got beat 1-0, but I'd done very well. Uh, and it was as a stage where I'd played three games the season prior and then 15 games that season. So I was being like nurtured into becoming Forest number one. Um, and Fergie had asked Cluffy, apparently, Cluffy owed Fergie a favour. I don't know what it was. And I was that favour. Wow. I went, so I was sent on loan for a month as cover for Jim Layton. Yeah. Um, in case anything happened to him. So, man, you had, had covered as goalkeeper for their FA Cup run, yeah. which they actually had to win that year. And if yes. you remember, Les Sealy yeah. played in the final. Well, Les, when I got called back to Forest after that one month, Les went as my replacement. So, in hindsight, I would have probably played in the Cup final that year. Uh, massive, massive. Lee Martin. Lee Martin. Scored, but, wasn't he? Yeah, Lee Martin. It was great. Again, like I say, he, he was a big presence. Fergie was a presence. So the first person that, when I met him on the morning I went for the, for the month on lawn, he, the first person that I was introduced to was a kit man. Yeah. Second person, uh, second person I was introduced to was the captain, Steve Bruce. And the, the, then from then it was, these are the dinner ladies, these are the girls who save the food. Morning, 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 Rita. How's it going? Morning, boss. But so... It weren't like standoffish. It was a family. It was bang. These are the most important people. They cook your food. They wash your kids. And that was at a time when he's not showboating there either because he's under pressure, right? That was the first trophy he won that year. So he's under exactly. And he's still... Because it's easy to do all that stuff when you've won three Premier Leagues on the bounce and you're walking around and it's a bit for show. Yeah. But when you're under pressure and those people are still that important to you, that speaks volumes to me. That's that's exactly how it was, and I think for me, if if this is the ideas I had of being a manager was would be that would be the first thing I do, call a meeting, get every single person that work at the football club in a meeting, right, right, players. These are the player. These are the people that work at the football club. Without these, you can't have a team. You, you guys, without this team, you can't have the job that you've got. So. Get to know each other, yeah. speak to each other. You know, you can't you can't work at a football club, walk past somebody and go, "Well, I know that that's Steve Bruce, but he doesn't know that I'm Mick, yeah. who's followed United all my life, and I absolutely love working at Manchester United, and you're my hero." But you know, that's how you become successful. For me, is yeah. is a close knit unit, yeah. especially at football clubs. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, it's funny because we've talked about like cluffy years. It always sticks in my mind that Stuart Pierce used to put a, an advert in, was it Coventry's programme or Forest programme? It was Forest programme, yeah. Program, that he was a sparky. So you got this like... went on to play for England. Did he play 100 times? Was 90 or times? Whatever. Yeah. One of the best in the world. I mean, and it, it, Euro 96, I remember him playing left side of the three. I think he had Adams, Adams Central, Neville, right, and, and Pierce left. And that was probably the best team we've had. For, yeah. for no, I played, played uh, behind Pearcey yeah. uh, four seasons, five seasons. Yeah, yeah he's top leader. And, Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, yet he's, and yet he's got his advert for, for doing grafting, you know, for grafting on Sparky's work in the club. Yeah, electrician. 
Imagine <laughs> players, imagine black players looking at that now. I mean, different world. Yeah. Different world yeah. Brilliant. Right, we're getting towards the end. Um, I love, listen, amazing stories. You're a fantastic storyteller. And, you know, I know you, you work on the after dinner, dinner circuit and uh, you, yeah. you've, got, you've got the right skill set for that, I'll definitely. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's just finish with the walking thing. Um, so uh, I first saw your walking videos, I think about nine months ago, maybe, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I... As, as someone who loves getting out there and walking, whether it's with my dog or getting up in the hills over there in Spain or wherever I've lived in the world, I love, just love getting out in, in, in the fresh air. And um, what what you do, and you're, I look forward to watching your videos every day that you do them, um, and what you do in the way that you talk and connect with people on there as well is lovely. But um, it's, a, it's a pretty important thing, I think, that is it's a simple thing that probably isn't that difficult to do. It's probably second nature for you. But um, I, I can't... I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who said, "Have you seen? Have you seen Big Norm's videos? Have you? Have you watched him? Have you yeah. seen what he does? Have you seen what he said the other day? Brilliant, absolutely top class, pal. How's that? How has that changed your life a little bit? Uh, it's been a game changer for me because uh, I know we spoke a little bit off air, but um, when I came out of the game last January, um, it was the first time I'd come out of football in thirty-three years. So. It's what I wanted to do. I wanted to break. But when it hit me, when 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 that wasn't the day-to-day routine and not getting up, getting in your car at six in the morning and driving to Nottingham to do your job, whatever you're doing, um, I, I, I just struggled. I don't know. It was, it's really hard to explain why. Uh, at the same time, my dad got diagnosed with cancer, which thankfully he's over now. So mm-hmm. that on top of it, I, I really struggled men- mentally. Um so much so that, like, I, you know, locked in the bedroom for a full day, I'd stay in bed till midday and become quite a lazy git, uh, which, I, which I'd never been. And I discovered walking simply through a, a mate just saying, you know, you're not yourself. I can tell you're not yourself. Why didn't you get back in the game? Although I didn't want to. I wanted to break. Yeah. He says, well, I go walking a lot. Why don't you come with me? So I did it. And it's something I've never done. It's always been the cars on the drive, get in it, because that's what it's there for, you know. And because football takes you up and down the country, all over, scouting players, especially when you're coaching. Yeah. Um, I thought to myself, how, how have I drove up and down that motorway for three years and on my last contract and being like a space cadet sometimes, you know. And then on the after-dinner circuit, getting home, drop my gear off, get in the car and go to... Birmingham, Carlisle, wherever it may be to do the after-dinner stuff. I thought, how have I done it? But walking kind of gradually started to sort me out. Amazing. I did. And a mate come up to me and said, loving your videos. I don't know why I started doing the blogging and the videos. I don't know why. why, Probably because I was lost and something to do and lost that dressing room banter and probably wanted a bit of attention, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. I do the same. I do the same. I use social media uh, for that, but as as I was going along with it, what I tended to notice were people were sending. Uh, not I wasn't home to direct message, so people were coming back like saying things like, "Loving your videos. Uh, I've been really down lately, and I look forward to seeing them every day. It gives me a lift, and I th- and I thought. It's giving me a lift. It's giving them a lift. Someone that's been in the public eye for the last so many years, however it be. 
let's use this to help me and help them. And so I got in touch with a lot of players who I knew that had been quite open about the mental health issues. Yeah. I, that's why we've become a group. Chris Kirtland, yeah. Steve Howard, Dean Windass, Nigel Jemson. So we formed a, we decided to form a group where we could be non-profitable profitable, and all the funds were raised by doing walks and stuff like that. We can give to the mental health side. Yeah. So this was before COVID, but then COVID struck and it got very, very busy. So the blog, so I opened my Twitter page to direct message. Like I said to you before, some of the messages you won't believe about people in desperate, desperate trouble. And some of the main reasons are marital, a lot of marital problems, uh, splitting up, yeah. uh, kids, not seeing kids and going through court cases and stuff like that, which happened to me years ago. So I could kind of understand what were, what they were kind of going through. Um, uh, pressures of work, pressures of working from home, pressures of kids being off school, and it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. So this walking's brilliant. We're called the Watch Foundation, Walking and Talking Charity Heights. So we were meant to be doing Kilimanjaro this year, but that got cancelled because of COVID. So that's going to be next year. So we're doing coast to coast this year. So we're just raising funds. And what we're going to do is we're going to be working in partnership with small mental health charities to help fund so they can grow and people can get on the phone ring up if you're struggling get help and by someone that's been in the public eye that speaks out loud about it i think people are talking more now because they can say well if he can talk about it so can i yeah absolutely and i think and i think it's grown and grown and grown and it is really really growing we're going to have to start employing people now to once we do get that charity number, which we're still waiting on, which it should be just around the corner, the demand's getting so high. So we want to try and take it to another level, kind of like what Sporting Chance have done. Yeah, yeah. So we think we can we can do something similar long term. Amazing, amazing. I mean, like I, you know, it's not just because there'll be some people in great need, in great need, and, and like you say, you've clearly had some. Well, a lot of conversations with people in real trouble, and then there's probably people on a on a lower level in terms of you know where they are and you know, having problems. Yeah, I mean my nothing. My story is not compared. My story on how I struggled is nothing compared to. Yeah. But there's all different levels of anxiety, and struggles, and depression, and everybody. I think. You know, Chris Kirtland works for the Liverpool Foundation and they've just done a study and it was said two or three years ago that, that one in four people suffer from depression. Yeah. He, he, he thinks it's nearer three, three in four. So at some stage in the life, someone has a little bit of a lull and the mind just plays games and that man jumps off the shoulder and he goes, you're not doing that today. You're meant to be in bed, you're depressed. And, and, and you know... So walking for me has been a game changer. So I'm fitter, I feel better. So I always say it's the best medicine. So if you've got hangover, if you've got an hangover, you get out in the fresh air. Always, yeah. Better for it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's plan it, do it, feel better for it. I don't think it can be put across any simpler than that. No, no, it's brilliant. I mean, like I said, it's it's free and it's like you say, it's medicine. And, and I, I think. 
it can sometimes be too simple. And I've probably been guilty a little bit of one or two people I know saying, come on, just get yourself out there. You'll be all right type of thing. And it isn't always as simple as that. But it's, it's it, there can be no bad that comes from it. There can't be any no. you getting outside, even if you can't walk that far because you're not that fit yeah. or whatever, go out there for 10 minutes and get some fresh air. That's better than sitting on your backside inside. You know, there's lots of different, lots of benefits that that can have. Now, for me, I, I can relate to a lot of what you said. Uh, I've had I've had moments in the last couple of years. I never thought of that. I never thought I would mm. be susceptible. But mm. everyone's susceptible, and everyone's human. And that prescription that Doctor Big Norm is putting out there is yeah. good for a lot of people, and is going to help, and certainly not going to do any harm. And I think, honestly, mate, what you're doing is just is inspirational. I love that it's coming from someone who's just a man of the people, particularly at a time when politicians leave me, you know, politicians have left me cold for years, but yeah. you've never been really a year well, like you when you've had people that, that, you know, you look at them, people can't relate to the, the people in power. Yeah. Can't relate to them or see any way that they're helping them. You need someone else. I think I think what it is, Kev, is that um people when they see you blogging and all that, they go and there's a bit of comedy in it without me knowing. Yeah. It's just me being me. Yeah, yeah. Big goalie, you know what I mean? And I think... I look at, that before. It's that instinct. You've got you've got an instinct that, that appeals to people, right? And it's not something to be in any way ashamed of for people to knock you about. People will knock you because that's human nature, but yeah. the majority of people are going to warm to that and you've been yeah. using it. And I think it's, I think it's phenomenal, mate. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's. Re- I appreciate your words as well. It's like, it, it, I don't know, I've, I'm getting great satisfaction at the moment of the messages. Now, I have to say back to people, we ain't professionals at this. No, no, it, no. It, you need to, it gets to, you can't remember say, what should I do? I can say to you, this is what I do when I feel like that, but you need to go and get help. You've spoke to me, so now please go and I don't know, ring the Samaritan, ring whoever, ring ring Mind Charity, or, or, or and get help. Um, I've done it. I've done it. I, I had ten sessions through the PFA because I was a member and to help me, and it's and it's been brilliant for me. But the main one, obviously, has been walking. But I have seeked help along, along the way as well. I, I've not been. No, it's, it's good. It's, it's a responsible thing to say, isn't it? That you know there, there are qualified experts out there for a certain level of, of, of you know severity or whatever. But um, yeah, but hopefully the stuff that you do means that less people call it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. And and like it is, it is definitely helping people, and that that's the satisfaction that we we are getting out of it as a group of ex players that have been in and around. I would like to say a high pressure job on and pressure on getting results and maybe that's why we do come out of the game and, and a lot of us struggle and I'm sure there's a lot more that haven't spoken out that it's affected as well. So you you open, you open the people more confident and, and feel less less afraid to speak about things these days than they used to because in fact if there's a few people less in a difficult dark place because of it then that's that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, so I, I I think I get frustrated when football doesn't sell itself well. I love football. It's in my blood. Part of me always will be, always has been. And I get frustrated when football doesn't doesn't sell itself well, doesn't, re- doesn't reflect well. Um, and, and the people who don't know football 
so well. Look at it and think that it's full of bad people, full of people with big heads, full of people who don't care about other people, and full of people who can't relate. And I love to see any example where the game is selling itself well, where something about football, something good is coming out of football, something good associated with the game is coming out. And I can't think of better examples in recent times than what you're doing because I, I, I know there's amazing people in the game, amazing characters, amazing humble people. And I, I just hope that a few more of them maybe use those skills to do some of the stuff that you're... And even if it's just to help the neighbour or help someone else or speak on social media or whatever. Yeah. I, I just think that that's so important because football is life and life is football. When I'm coaching, I'm talking to people. I'm not talking to footballers. I'm talking to people. They have things going on in their lives. The young kids, the changes going on in their lives. And, and I know that I need to be a better human being with them to be a better coach. And, you know, I, I just, I think what you're doing is amazing. I love the football. I mean, listen, we've, some of the stuff we've covered on this call, you know, some of the names that have been involved in your career. I forgot, even before this call, I forgot everything. And I've done a bit of research. I try and be prepared and try and give it the respect it deserves. But I forgot about some of the things that you've done and the places you've been. And you must be proud. You must be so proud to have been in those places. Uh, but maybe there's not none of that is even as important as what you're doing now. No, I think so, yeah. Like, like I say, I feel, I feel blessed. Um, I probably didn't realise I had as much talent as what, what my career's suggested I had, because probably that's because being so laid back. Uh, but, yeah, I must admit, what, what, uh, what we're doing now, uh, I think it, I, I giving something back, you can kind of say, for all the support that we've had through, through football, through, through, you know, through thick and thin, to give a bit back is to get to the to, to my age now at 51, 52, where I'm out of the game, I'm still buzzing that it's helping people. I think that's the best way to, to describe it. Amazing. Well, listen, well done. Don't stop doing it. Keep on. I hope it gets bigger and better and has more and more positive impacts because I, I just think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I've really no, it. I'm absolutely certain everyone who listens to it will enjoy it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I hope Roxy's all right. Yeah, keep keep in touch, mate. I will do. Top man, listen, been brilliant. Thanks a lot. Cheers, cheers, pal. See you, mate. Take care. Bye bye.